Well, good morning, New Life family. It's so good to see you, and I just want to say a special welcome to those of you watching online and to our patio family. We are just so glad that you're here, and um, I'm a little distracted this morning. One, because I'm hungry, because we are fasting, which I'll talk about in a minute, and then also because I have my cute little grandson over here, so I'm trying to just look forward, but I'm just so glad that you are here this morning, and just hope that you felt welcomed and that you belonged the second you hit the sidewalk today, and that you just know that God loves you. And today, um, if you are new, if this is your first time, if you haven't really connected yet, we just invite you to come to one of our connection counters um, out here in the lobby. We also have one on the patio. We would love to just talk with you. We have a mug. We would love to answer any questions. And again, just tell you ways... um, that you can connect here. And usually after service, we have snacks and coffee. But if you were here last weekend, you know that for Lent, we are observing um, just kind of a church family fast from 7 p.m. until 11 a.m. So we are not having snacks during this time, but we have coffee and we have tea. And we invite you to stay and to talk with somebody, meet somebody, ask some questions, and just have a great time of community. And I don't know about you, I'm hoping you don't hear my stomach growling, but fasting is kind of a new thing for me from 7 to 11, and I'm realizing I am a snacker at night, and that is what I am missing the most, is snacking. And um, I'm, you might hear me whining a little bit about it, but I realize that I am missing ice cream. So, um, and it's not something I usually have in my freezer, but now that I can't have it, I really miss it. So last night I took my dog for a walk because I thought, you've got to get away from the kitchen. And I just had such an amazing time of just praying for my neighbors. And I just um, encourage you, if you're joining us in this fast or whatever you're giving for Lent, just to keep your eyes focused on Jesus. But because I am kind of food motivated, would you take some time this morning to just stand up, greet someone, ask them what they miss um, when you're fasting? Again, glad you're here. Hope you guys are having some fun conversations out there. Good morning, family. 
It's so good to be together. I am so expectant for what God has for us this morning. Um, but before we enter into this time of worship through song, um, I just wanted to share some, some thoughts um, as we enter into this time. And I just wanna encourage and remind us, you know, this time of singing unto the Lord is not something that we just do because it's a precursor to a sermon or to warm us up to hear the word or you know, something that we do because this is just what church does. But this is a moment for us corporately to come together and to ascribe God worth and to give Him thanksgiving and to give Him praise and to offer ourselves because He's worthy of it, because He's worthy of everything. And if we can see this moment singing unto the Lord as a moment to encounter Him, it'll change everything. It'll change everything because you know what? It's not, it's not about the songs that we're singing and it's not about whether or not you know the lyrics or not. A song was only ever meant to inspire your own heart response to the Lord, to give us language, to stir something in us so that we begin to worship Him out of our own heart space. And so what will move this time from something that we just do and act into a place of communion, into a place of deep encounter is posture. It's all about heart posture and posture meaning an attitude or an approach. And so this morning, I want us to just take a moment. I think we can come into this space with so much on our heart. Even this morning, I was just like laying things down unto the Lord so that I could have a clear space that I could see Him more clearly. And so this morning, we're gonna do that to, to posture our hearts with expectation, in humility, in reverence. And we're gonna do that just by singing a simple chorus. And as we sing this, I just encourage you to take this moment to posture your heart and to say, God, I'm here. It might not feel like a lot, but I'm here and I'm, I'm ready to commune with you. So will you join me as we just lift this song to the Lord and just set our gaze upon Him and come expectant into this time to have conversation with Him and for Him to move.
9, verses 4 and 8 say, One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And you have said, Seek my face. And my heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. This morning, God, we just come to you seeking after you, seeking after your face, seeking after your will, Lord. Would you just quiet our hearts and our minds so that we can hear you, so that we can hear the ways you are whispering to us, God. Amen.
over to you, God, and I ask that you will prepare our hearts this morning, um, that we see ways that you are moving, God. We're just thankful to be your people. We're thankful for your love for us, um, that you're here with us all the time, God, and we just invite you in this morning um, to be with us and to feel your presence, God. We love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, please be seated as we invite the ushers forward to receive the offering this morning. And when we are doing our offering, it's a practice of generosity, which is a part of who we are as God's people and as people of new life. And if you are new-ish here, or maybe this is your first time, there's a couple of things that we just want you to learn about us. And part of getting to know who we are as God's people and at New Life specifically is you kind of have to be here a little bit. So if you can kind of commit to coming three times, try to do it three times in a row so you can get a feel for who we are as a church, what we're about, what we believe, all of these things that are very important when deciding um, who your church family is going to be. So we just invite you to join with us for a few weeks and um, see what you think. And then we want you to meet somebody. Even if you've been coming here a long time, we want you to meet somebody. There are tons of people who come here every week, and I promise you don't know everybody. I don't know everybody. Um, so I just challenge all of us to look for somebody you haven't met today and say hi to them, whether that means that it's someone in your section that you've never seen before, say hi and welcome them. When you're out on the patio enjoying coffee and tea, but no snacks because we're fasting, um, say hi to somebody, maybe ask them how much they're missing their snacks and how much, how many more minutes till 11 a.m. Um, but meet somebody today and then look for ways the Holy Spirit is moving. Maybe you're being nudged that you need to pray for somebody. You know something that's going on in their life and you just want to cover them in prayer. Offer that to them today. Or maybe you love being greeted by a smiling face every Sunday and you're like, I can do that. I can smile at people and say hi. Like, listen to those nudges if you're feeling called to any of those things um, and take that, that step. 
So we welcome you to join us as who we are as people of new life and people of God. Um, one of the things that we're doing during Lent, Joanne already talked about fasting and how we all love that and it's our favorite part of Lent. Um, but it is a great spiritual practice that we are leaning into. And another thing that we're leaning into is scripture memorization. So when you memorize scripture, we all have, well, not all, a lot of us probably have some verses that we've picked up along the way. And I just want to encourage you because scripture memorization can be very challenging. And when I came to faith, I was in high school. I was um, later in my high school career. And we, for our senior banquet or something like that, we had to choose a verse that was like our verse that was going to be on our slide with our picture and all of that. And I was like, I'm just going to pick a verse because I have no idea. I was very new to faith and to the Bible. So I'm honestly like kind of just picked one. I was like, this sounds good. Um, so I chose Proverbs 19.21, which says, many are the plans in a man's heart, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. Why I chose that when I was 18, I don't know. But it has become like my kind of a life verse for me because I love to make plans and God loves to say, I know that's what you had planned, but this is what we're doing. So get on board. So you never know when these verses that you make part of your heart will come out later in life, whether it's a trial that you're facing or a way for you to minister to somebody else. So I just encourage you to make these verses a part of your life. So Elena made us these wonderful memorization cards. There's one for last week when we were memorizing Colossians 3, verses 1 through 3, that we still have some extras if you didn't get one. And then there's a new one for this week that's for verses 4 through 6. So on one side, it has the full verse printed out. And on the other side, it just has the first letter of each word in the verse. So they're very, very helpful when you're learning them. You can stick them in your car, you can stick them by your phone, you can take a picture of it and have it on your phone, but pick one of these up, and I encourage you to join with us as we memorize Colossians 3, 1 through 17, but in little chunks. You don't have to memorize all 17 verses at the same time. Okay, I'm gonna invite everybody to stand as I read a prayer of confession over us, and then please stay standing for a scripture reading following that. Heavenly Father, we confess our struggle with anger, often allowing it to lead us into sin rather than resolving it before the day ends. Forgive us for the times we've let anger disrupt peace and unity. Teach us to manage our emotions in ways that honor you, promoting forgiveness and reconciliation. Help us to reflect your love and patience, ensuring our actions and words build bridges, not barriers, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Colossians chapter 3, 8 and 9. But now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. Don't lie to each other, for you have stripped off your old sinful nature and all its wicked deeds. And then in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, starting in verse 21. You have heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you've never done that, have you? Come on. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. And finally, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26. 
And don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry. For anger gives a foothold to the devil. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we come to you today, God, I pray that we would allow our lives to be shaped, to be read by you, to be corrected by you, to be encouraged by you. I pray, God, as we open up your word today, God, we would recognize that it is life-giving to read your word and allow your Holy Spirit to speak to us, God. That, that God, you have spiritual food for us today. That you had spiritual food for us yesterday, but God, you have new, you've, you've got a new buffet for us today. And so God, I wanna, I wanna just pray that as we read your word, as we study your word, as we listen to your Holy Spirit, God, that we would be changed, that we'd be transformed. Nobody is gonna be changed by my words today, God. Nobody's gonna be changed by a story I tell. Nobody's gonna be changed by trying to, uh, Lord, nobody's gonna be changed by mere human ways, but God, through the power of your Holy Spirit, we can all leave different today. So may we have ears to hear and may we have eyes to see. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen. You may have a seat. So if you weren't able to be with us last week and you're not familiar with the fact that we are entering into a corporate fast, I wanted to recap a couple of things. And in fact, in this particular service, the 9 a.m. service, I didn't say this last week and I wanna make sure I clarify something uh, within this particular service. And it's simply this, that the purpose of fasting is not to be legalistic. The purpose of fasting is not to like walk around and like look at everybody else and say, whoa, 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 don't be picking up that cracker or cookie, right? Like that's not what that's not what we're doing. Also, if you are someone who has never fasted and it feels intimidating to think about fasting from seven at night till eleven in the morning, day after day after day, here's what I would say: start somewhere. Start with one day a week, start with two days a week, start with three days a week. Wherever you may start, start somewhere so that you begin listening to the Holy Spirit in new and fresh ways. And then the second thing I would say is that I know that for some people, um, if you go without food, there are medical consequences for that. And that is not our intent, is to somehow make you suffer uh, significant medical consequences for fasting. And so again, don't be legalistic. What I would say is, Work with your medical professional, work with your doctor. You know your own body and you know how to navigate what a fast might look like for you. And the goal, again, is not simply just to uh, take away food or to um, uh, simply stop eating. It's to press into the Lord. And that's why we used the phrase last week, to starve the flesh and to feed the spirit. And sometimes we can fall into a situation where we're really good at starving the flesh, but we're not feeding the spirit. When we talk about this idea of flesh, what we're referring to is the fact that God has given us desires, but because of sin, we have disordered those desires. And so the desires aren't necessarily in of themselves wrong or bad or sinful, but when they begin to dominate our life, when they begin to be the very thing that controls our life, no longer are we worshiping God, but we're worshiping our desires. 
And so fasting becomes this way of being more aware of the fact that we have these desires and those desires in their sinfulness, in, the, if, if, in their fleshliness, are trying to control us. And it's easier for most of us to train our desires than it is to walk in step with the Spirit. And so that's why we're entering into this particular season. And you may have noticed this if you are participating uh, in the fast, that when you begin to fast, that the enemy wants to come against you. You may discover that when you begin to fast, that instead of early on especially, instead of feeling like you're walking in more in step with the Spirit, you might become more aware of the brokenness and sinfulness of your life. You might discover that the enemy wants to put greater temptation in front of you, not lesser temptation. In fact, I think the enemy operates a little bit like Starbucks, let me explain. I didn't even realize this was a thing until several weeks ago, but I was driving by a Starbucks that's in the same um, uh, parking lot as Planet Fitness, and I'm not even thinking about going to Starbucks. It wasn't on my radar screen. I didn't want coffee, um, and my wife is trying to make coffee at home and not get Starbucks, and so for part of her Lenten uh, abstinence or fast. And so uh, there was nothing in my mind that wanted Starbucks on that particular day. But all of a sudden, I was near that particular Starbucks, and look what happened to my phone at the bottom. It let me know that there was a Starbucks near me and I had a balance, I had a credit on the account that I could actually go use. And so all of a sudden, Starbucks wasn't on my mind, but when this popped up and I looked at my phone, all of a sudden, guess what was on my mind? Starbucks. And I feel like the enemy operates in the same way sometimes, that that particular area of sin or that particular area of my life isn't even on my mind, and then all of a sudden, it's like out of nowhere, wham, all of a sudden my mind begins to focus in on, if, almost as if I'm not even aware of why it's going in a particular direction. And so we find ourselves, when we press into the Lord, all of a sudden being, feeling like we have been under attacked or greater emphasis that the enemy has in particular areas of our lives. And when you experience that, our tendency can be just to have more grit or have more strength and to immediately depend on our resources rather than God's resources. And if I can share with you something that might be meaningful or speak to somebody today is that oftentimes when we give into our flesh, it's because we are depending upon our resources rather than God's resources. We, we depend on our own grit, our own strength, our own desire, our own thought process, our own patterns, rather than asking God, how can I bring the resources of the Holy Spirit? How can I bring the supernatural resources of the Holy Spirit into this particular situation? And you might be thinking that to say that when your temptation is Starbucks is like, wow, that's pretty, I mean, really? Like, like it's like you're bringing the resources of the Lord's heaven armies because of a temptation of Starbucks. But when you train yourself to depend on God's resources with the small things, you will begin to learn how to trust his resources with the big things. And you will begin to hear his voice in different ways. In fact, the reason that we often don't do things like that is because, quite honestly, we have a difficult time trusting in God and his resources being sufficient. 
When Adam and Eve are in the garden, they find themselves questioning whether or not they can trust God with good and evil. And then they start feeling like they're missing out on something. And so the enemy comes along and says, hold on a second. The reason why God doesn't want you to eat from this particular tree and this particular fruit is because he's afraid that you will be like him. And rather than trusting that God created us and is sufficient for us and his provision is sufficient for us, all of a sudden they begin to question that. Why is this so challenging? Two things to think about. Independence is the goal of physical growth. Independence is the goal of physical growth. And so you train almost your entire life for greater independence. I mean, the earliest you, you know, probably memory that you can have is about gaining independence. Think about a child all of a sudden from just laying there doing absolutely nothing. Some of you parents are wishing your kids still did absolutely nothing. But oh, amen, that's right. Someone's being honest this morning. But you have this, you have this uh, child that's just laying there, and then all of a sudden they begin to roll over, and they begin to crawl, and they begin to uh, get up on all fours, and then they begin to climb up on the couch, and then they begin to couch surf, and then they begin to walk, and then they begin to run, and then they begin to have opinions. And so it's not just physical development, but it's that cognitive development. In fact, in our particular culture, think about it this way, and I would actually push back against this, but we raise our kids to know and to love God. We raise our kids to operate in a certain way. And then within our culture, when you get to about the age of 18, we say these words, go like find yourself or go figure out who you are. What are you talking about? I've spent the last 18 years helping you know your identity in Christ. Why would I want you to somehow think that all of that is a waste and now you gotta go figure out stuff on your own? But that's the culture that we are raised in. We are trained towards independence in our physical growth, in, our, in the way that we live our lives. And the problem with that is, is that dependence is the goal of spiritual growth. So if independence is the goal of, of physical growth, then dependence is the, is the goal of spiritual growth. And so we train ourselves to understand physical growth. We train ourselves for independence. And don't get me wrong, there is a level. I do not want my kids living in my house the rest of my life. That's not what I'm talking about. But there is a sense that we are so trained for independence, so trained for independent thinking, so trained for being self-sufficient, so trained for all the, of these types of things, that when it comes to spiritual growth, it's a complete disconnect and we're not quite sure how to be dependent upon God. And so we enter into a season of fasting that we might find ourselves giving ourselves more fully to, the, to dependence upon God. Fasting trains us in that dependency. But don't train yourself that way without depending on the resources of God. Fasting isn't just about changing your behavior. It's about transforming your heart. There's this haunting warning. We read Matthew chapter 5, 21 earlier on, but in Matthew 5, 20, there's Jesus is speaking to the crowd and he has this haunting warning to us about what it means to be righteous. He says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, but I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the, than the righteousness of the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
And so he's talking about this idea that here you have the Pharisees who on the outside look like they have everything together. They're dotting all their I's and they're crossing all their T's. They're, they're finding themselves from the outward sense being like the most holy people around. Jesus comes along and says, hey, your righteousness needs to uh, surpass those people and, um, if you're going to enter the kingdom of God. And what he's getting at in this particular um, passage and what follows it in Matthew chapter five and Matthew chapter six and Matthew chapter seven, which is commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount, what what he's getting at is that the Pharisees were only concerned with the outside. They were only worried with how people saw them as they prayed. They were only worried with keeping the law in an outward sense. And yet Jesus is way more concerned in Matthew Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, not just with behavior, although behavior is important to Jesus because out of the heart flows our behavior. But he doesn't just want our outside to look um, pristine and holy and good. He wants our heart transformed. And so the very first area that Jesus addresses in Matthew chapter five, as he goes through a whole series of different things that he wants us to be aware of is anger. Because anger exposes our heart. Our, out, be, our outbursts, our frustration, our anger, exposes our, what does Jesus mean by anger? Because there are times where we see Jesus get angry. And so throughout scripture, we recognize that there are moments where we are moved towards anger at injustice, where we find ourselves having a righteous anger that is appropriate and actually fuels us to come against injustice And so Jesus doesn't seem to be talking about righteous anger at this particular time. What he seems to be discussing as as we'll study in these passages is that anger happens. We know that. We know that anger is going to happen, but being controlled by anger seems to be the issue. When we read Ephesians chapter four, verse 26, it says that, Anger, if you're not careful, will get a foothold in your life. And if there's anything that I know about the enemy, that he doesn't just want a foothold, he wants a stronghold. And some of us began um, wrestling with anger in our life and it was a foothold, but now years later it's become a stronghold and that anger maybe isn't even a stronghold just in your life. It's become a generational issue, a stronghold in your family's life. Because if something happened, something took place and everybody was angry at first and never discovered how to deal with that anger in healthy ways and never understood how to deal with anger in a way that was God honoring and to control that anger and it has been out of control for 20 or 30 or 40 years. I love how Matthew 5, 21 begins. You have heard that our ancestors were told, you must not murder. We wish that passage would stop right there, right? Like most of us are like, cool, I can do that. I don't need to murder people, right? Like, yeah, like you're like, I'm good. Like, hey, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not even worried about it. I'm not even, I'm not even thinking about, well, maybe I'm thinking about it, but I'm definitely not gonna do it. I'm not gonna murder 
And when we find ourselves doing that, we again are looking at our behaviors, but we're not looking at our heart. And many of us will go, hey, you know what? I am so much better. We use this phrase all the time. If not verbally, we say it in our mind. Because I'm not gonna murder, because I'm not going to treat somebody, because I'm not gonna uh, go to the extent that somebody else would, I am so much better than the people over there. He goes on to say, if you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, and we wish this part wasn't there, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. So let's define anger. Anger is a feeling that comes over our body and mind when, we are, when, when our unmet expectations encounter a threat. Anger is a feeling that comes over our body and mind when our unmet expectations encounter a threat. There's a physical response that happens. Have you ever felt yourself getting angry and you get warm and your blood feels like it's beginning to boil and you get irritated and you grit your teeth and you feel the stress coming up your back and into the back of your neck and you get this pulsating headache if it stays there long? Am I the only one that's preaching to myself today? <laughs> like anger, there's that physiological response that happens in our body. There's also a playing over and over and over. It's like you have an anger mixtape on repeat in your brain. And you keep going over and over and over and your mind keeps looping it over and over and over again. And you think about, man, if I just got that person in the right space, I would tell them what I think. So there's different types of anger that happen though. And that's something to keep in mind. There's this idea of visceral anger, which is more of like a flare up or kind of this um, unreasonable way of getting angry. Um, a reactionary anger with no real lag time in between what happened and getting immediately angry. It's the anger you feel when somebody cuts you off in traffic. It's the anger that you feel, not that I ever was like this, when your child spills a drink on your carpet or couch and you've told them a hundred, forget child, when your teenager or young adult spills a drink on your carpet or couch and you've told them a hundred times. Why do we get angry? Because we have an expectation of how certain things are supposed to be done, and that comes against a threat. Meaning, if I told you how things were supposed to be done, and you didn't do it that way, the threat is that you don't respect me. So there's an there's an unmet expectation that happens when we find ourselves getting angry. And then there's also this idea of a threat. And sometimes we think that threats are just big, but threats can be really, really subtle. Just yesterday, I let the narrative of anger start rearing up in my head. 
Dana and I, we got up yesterday morning and we knew that the house needed to be cleaned. And so I went downstairs and I began to clean and then she came down and she began to do a couple of things. And then uh, she got a phone call and she said Nellie needed her to come pick her up. And then she said something else that I didn't quite hear as she was going out the door. No fights ever begin with miscommunication. (laughs) Never doesn't happen. But she said something and I didn't really hear what she said. And so here I am cleaning the house and 20 minutes goes by and 30 minutes goes by and an hour goes by and I'm like, where is she? I'm sitting here at home cleaning this house. Does she not love me? Does she not care for me? Does she doesn't respect me? Does she not understand how sacrificial I am? (laughs) The narrative begins to go. She gets home. I know we like to minimize it. I wasn't just frustrated. I wasn't just irritated. Irritation happened 20 minutes earlier. (laughs) What she had said was, I have to go pick up Lexi, or uh, Allison, and then I have to take all her friends home. How would that have changed my reaction if I would have just heard her? All of a sudden, I have an unmet expectation. I thought we were gonna clean together, but no longer is there a threat there. So it's the combination of those two things that begins to produce anger in us. So there's visceral anger that happens when, you know, something out of our control. You get in an accident and you hit that or you back up and you bump somebody's car and all of a sudden your immediate reaction is you're upset or your kid calls you and they say that they uh, got in a little bit of a fender bender and instead of being compassionate, like, are you okay? Your first reaction is, oh, let me get the right words out, Right? But then there's a second type of anger, and that's the being angry. And that's actually what we see happening in this passage in Matthew. It says, but I say, if you are even angry with someone, in other translations, it's it's more clearly um, stated in here, that in being angry with others, when you are in a state of anger with others, which means that in the this idea, there's a meditation to our anger, that we begin to stew, that it begins to grow, that what got cut off the moment that Dana got home the other day, if I wouldn't have spoken to her about my anger and asked about where she, where she was or what was going on, all of a sudden that could have stewed and all of a sudden later on at dinner, I'm eating and I'm cutting my stuff really horribly and vigorously and angrily. And she's like, what is wrong with you? You know what you did, but I didn't, but I wouldn't have said it. I would have just had it in my mind. We stew on it. It grows. And when that begins to happen, all of a sudden we begin to deal with things like unforgiveness and grudges. When it grows over time, we begin to nurse that grudge. And again, we, it's not only, man, she, She doesn't care about cleaning with me and she doesn't care about me and she disrespected me and she's she's taken me for granted. All of a sudden it grows. You see that how that happens? And so this type of anger is what this passage is actually talking about. Nursing a grudge at a brother or sister in a community. 
And it's usually caused, this type of anger is usually caused by sin done to us, first and foremost. It's why that we read in that passage earlier about gossip and slander and abuse and harm. It starts off as somebody just offending us or hurting us, but all of a sudden, if we're not careful, what they did to us can turn into, do you, do you know what they did to me? Like, like it can be like a pastor sharing with an entire congregation what you thought was angry yesterday, right? All of a sudden, it can grow. And all of a sudden, we begin to slander and we become angry and we get frustrated. And then it becomes, not only did you hear what they did, do you know what type of person they are? And then it becomes harm. Well, what is harm? Most of us just go to physical but in a culture of cancel culture, there's way, other, there's way more that you can do to people than just physical harm. You shut them out of your life. You move them. Now, I understand that there are certain people that are toxic people that we have to create boundaries. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about our response so often when we stew on anger and allow it to begin to control us. A second way that this type of anger begins to stew and grow is that the enemy has this ability to twist truth. The enemy has this ability to twist truth. And one of the ways that the enemy twists truth is that he has this word that I'm gonna use that maybe you're not familiar with. It's called false imperatives. It usually is followed by things like this. Must, always, or never. You always do this. You never do this. You must do this imperative, this false imperative that the enemy takes and says, you know what? My friend, my, my coworker, my boss, they always, they always, they must, they must. They, all of a sudden, it's this false imperative narrative that begins to control our thinking. And then we start to act this way. I am alone. I must be in control. Life Life will always, this idea that somehow an unmet expectation, life will always be fair and just, and then what happens when it's not? Some of us struggle with this. I need to be perfect all the time. And when we don't even meet our own expectations, the threat is that I am not perfect. And we get angry even at ourselves. So two ways that this happens within this passage. The first way is a Greek word that many of you have heard pastors preach on. It's the word raka, which means idiot. It's in verse 22, and it's this idea of being brainless or worthless, that somehow when, some, when you're angry at somebody, that you would, uh, that you would um, have this type of opinion of them or even maybe yourself that you are brainless or worthless, which is in direct contradiction to what God has said about other people and you, that we are created in the image of God. The second thing that we see happening is that you could curse somebody as a fool, that they would be dull, stupid, or a blockhead. I love that, blockhead. We know some blockheads, right? Come on, just admit it. You've thought it. You've thought it. You've said it. Whether verbally or in your mind. 
And so this is the type of anger that begins to grow. This is the type of anger that begins to distance us from other people. And when this type of anger stews and when this type of anger grows, what the scripture says is that we are in danger of the fires of hell. Now, here's what most of you hear when I say those words or when I read those words from God's word is that you assume that if I am angry in this life, that I will be in danger of the fires of hell in the next life. But that's not what the text says. The text is actually written in what's referred to as a present participle, which means it's a present context. And so when you read this text, he said, what the text is saying is that when you curse people, when you call people idiot, and when you allow this anger to brew, that you will experience not a future hell, but a present one. Your life will begin to tear apart. And the word Gehenna, or also referred to as the Valley of Hinnom, is a place outside the southern walls of Jerusalem. It was a trash heap that was constantly on fire. And there was not only burning fire, and there was dogs that would maybe fight over scraps that were out there, but it's also where people went to do horrendous things. Just allow your mind to go. And so not just when you murder, but when you are angry, you are in danger of your life deteriorating. You are in danger of that anger controlling you. Because a slow burn never stops at just the feelings of being anger, all of a sudden it transforms, if we go back to Colossians, into rage, malicious behavior, slander, and filthy language. It transforms later on as we read into irritation, sharp tongue, oh, in this one, somebody needs to hear this, myself included, sarcasm. It has the power, your tongue has the power to give life or death. It transforms that anger eventually becomes passive aggressive or the silent treatment. Or even just if you let it stew long enough, you and your spouse or your roommate are in the same house and you're walking down the hallway and you're like, excuse me, like you're gonna run into each other. Oh, can I change the channel now? Right? Is it okay if I get some food right now? I've never done that, but I mean, someone here might, somebody here might have done that before. Somebody here might have done that before. So what do we do? What do we do? Well, first, I think we need to recognize how dangerous uncontrolled anger is. I think we assume that uncontrolled anger is just about our physical response or just about a moment, but it has the ability to actually destroy our lives for our life to become a present living hell. Let that soak in for a moment. Uncontrolled anger has that ability to destroy our life. James chapter one, verse 15 says this, these desires give birth to sinful actions and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to 
death. So when anger begins to grow, when your desire to put somebody in their place begins to grow, when your desire to see somebody else's downfall because of what they did to you begins to grow, and I am not absolving them of what they did, I'm not saying what they did is right, it's just when that uncontrolled anger and desire to see their destruction begins to control you, it's not their hell I'm worried about, it's yours. Matthew, if we continue reading on in chapter five, verses 23 through 24, says this. So if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. Sounds pretty simple. You're gathered here, run back home. It takes you about you know, five minutes to get back home or your neighborhood or to find the person or give them a call or text, but you're not thinking about a first century community. Jesus is speaking these words, probably, not probably, we know that he's near the Sea of Galilee as he's speaking these words, and the temple is in Jerusalem, which is 80 to 90 miles away. And so if you are up at the Sea of Galilee, and that's your context, and the temple is 80 or 90 miles away, your context or framework for what Jesus is saying is that after you've made that 80 or 90 mile walk, and you're at the temple, and you got your cute little lamb that you're getting ready to sacrifice, sorry, Peter. <laughs> but you had this animal that you're getting ready to sacrifice, all of a sudden you go, oh, somebody is ticked off at me or I'm ticked off at somebody else and you leave that sacrifice and you walk 80 to 90 miles back to reconcile with that particular person and then you make the 80 or 90 miles back to the temple in order to make your sacrifice. It sounds extreme, it is. Jesus is wanting us to understand how destructive anger is. We have to deal with it in significant ways. Otherwise, it grows. Otherwise, it matures. Otherwise, it changes from sinful desire into death. The second thing we, and when we're asking what do we do is that we begin to recognize in verses 23 through 24 that our relationship with God is tied up with our relationship with others. And so you can't gather in spaces like this and raise your hands and worship and come to an altar of prayer and say, God, I'm fully surrender and I hate this person over here. It is impossible to do that. Now we do it, but from a spiritual standpoint, you're living a duplicit life. Now, does somebody always accept your forgiveness or does somebody always want to reconcile? No, it takes two people to reconcile. But you can deal with your anger with somebody even if they don't want to deal with that anger. You can bring those things before the Lord. And so God is reminding us that our relationship with him and our relation is tied up with our relationship with other people. So deal with it quickly as the Ephesians passage talked to us about. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Deal with it quickly. How many times could have something like, again, I'll use yesterday as an example. As I was getting irritated, as I was getting frustrated, if I would have kept silent and not engaged Dana in conversation when she got home, it could have stewed for the rest of the day. Well, all of a sudden, it becomes 
something that we deal with quickly. Now, here's what many of us are thinking. David, this is really easy to understand. But it's really, 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 at about 10,000 more reallys, hard to do. One of the reasons it's hard to do is because we, again, are trained within a culture that actually doesn't do this. When you get angry at somebody, you ghost them. When you get angry at somebody, you, you cancel them. When you get angry at somebody, you just switch friend groups or you switch relationships or you switch churches or you switch fill in the blank. All of a sudden, that becomes our response. Or if you get really angry with them, you just go on social media and you let the whole world know what you think about them. And so we live in a culture that doesn't live this way. The second thing that makes it really hard is we have to depend on God to deal with our anger. And there's really two ways that he helps us deal with our anger. The first one is lament. God gives us the opportunity to lament to him, to bring our hurt, to bring our frustration, to bring our pain, to bring those unmet expectations and those threats. And when we do that, here's what God so often reminds me of, that The unmet expectations that I have, he reminds me, David, did you forget that we live in a sinful and a fallen world and at times people are going to hurt each other? The second thing is, he reminds me, David, if you think that person is going to bring you unconditional love like I can, then you're going to the wrong source. If you think that person can care for you, if you think that person can provide for you great in greater ways than I can, you're going to the wrong source. So unmet expectations and the threat, all of a sudden I lament and lay at the feet of Jesus. And when I lay those at the feet of Jesus, I'm reminded that God has the resources that I don't have. That God can bring peace that surpasses all understanding into my life. That God can shape my character, my surrender, my heart. That all of a sudden he begins to mold me to look more like him. Is it easy? Not at all. Does he invite us to experience the operating in this way? He says, yes, let me teach you a more life-giving, compelling way to live. Don't let anger control you. Let me teach you how to depend on my resources of peace. Let me teach you how to depend on my resources of forgiveness. Let me teach you how to depend on my resources of grace and mercy and kindness and goodness. And all of a sudden we begin to bear the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and let's get to this last one because it's so important, self-control. That anger would not control us. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes this morning? God, I pray in the quietness of this moment as we take a breath before we head out to the 
activities and conversations and coffee and signing up for things and thinking about what is even gonna happen later today or tomorrow, that God, we would take a breath and a pause and say, God, search my heart. Is there an area of anger that I continue to allow to stew and to grow that has the potential to destroy me? Is there a new fresh wound that I think, oh yes, it's not really that big of a deal, but it's sticking around longer than it should and all of a sudden it could grow into something that could destroy me or a relationship I have or a friendship I have or a marriage or a career opportunity? God, is there a conversation that I need to have in the coming day or week to make sure that this doesn't continue to grow. Not a text message, not a social media post. Is there a face-to-face physical conversation? Is there something that I need to do? God, if I, if I can't meet with that person, maybe it's not safe to meet with that person, maybe it's not the right situation, God, is there a way of me taking my lament and my hurt and my pain to you? Is there a way of me going to a fellow brother or sister in Christ and confessing to one another? Because we confess to God for forgiveness, according to James. We confess to one another for healing. And I need healing in this area of my life. So what would it look like for me to find a brother or sister that I can confess my anger to? Holy Spirit, I pray that you would not just work in this moment, but God, we would experience the residual impact of your Holy Spirit working in our lives this coming week. Shape us, God. Change us. Encounter us. Turn our affections and our attention and our hearts towards you. That it might not just be our behavior that looks like those who follow Jesus, but it would be our heart that would be following Jesus. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you stand with me this morning? I know that sometimes when we talk about things like anger and this, it stirs up emotions. I wanna let you know two things. First of all, we have a great prayer team and ministry team that will be up here afterwards that would love to encourage you and pray with you. We also have a care and counseling center that, um, that, both would love to minister to you or point you to additional resources in our community. If that's something that you would um, want to talk to somebody, stop by our Connection Central as you leave today. As you go, may we be a people that recognize that anger is something that is going to impact our lives, but anger is something that does not have to control us. So go, not in the uncontrolled power of anger, go in the controlled power of the Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen and amen.